listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Do you like listening to our show? We aim to inspire, inform, and maybe even entertain. If you're listening on iTunes or what's now known as Apple Podcasts, could you please take a moment to leave a review? It's quick and easy. Even I figured out how to do it, and technology and apps are not my thing. You could just leave a rating or add some comments, whatever you'd like. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would make it easier for other listeners to find the show, spreading the word about pro bono and access to justice. Thanks so much for your help. Today, we're talking to BJ Jensen from Paul Weiss. BJ spoke with us from New York City, and we discussed his career, the firm's pro bono program, being a relative newcomer to pro bono leadership, meaningful pro bono matters, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. BJ, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? In other words, tell us about you. Sure. Uh, So I'm Canadian. I went to college and law school in Canada, um, worked a little bit in between. And then after law school, I clerked for a couple of years and then came down to Poway in New York. Okay. So that is a lot of material we want to follow up with. Why did you decide to become a lawyer? I think um, it was the experience I had working in between college and law school that really shaped it. So I first was working in low-income housing communities in my hometown uh, and then joined the Canadian federal government working in Aboriginal health. Um, And in both experiences, I was witnessing forms of systemic injustice uh, that I really wanted to play a role in changing. Um, And I realized that in order to have access to the important conversations that were happening around those issues, you needed to have further education and, and namely a law degree. So that's what brought me to law. What attracted you as a college graduate to work for uh, low income housing? It's an interesting choice. I think I'd always worked with, I was working with families, particularly uh, like children and youth, but then also families. And I'd always loved working with children. And I don't know, it was just the direct impact of my efforts was so uh, visible, which was really rewarding. And there was so much spirit in these in the communities that I was working with. Yeah, so I think it was those, those two factors. I, I probably stumbled into it a little bit and then kept going back to it because I found it so rewarding. That's cool. Now, at some point, you decide to leave Canada and move to New York, and you got to Paul Weiss. How did all that happen? <laughs> so it's funny, actually. I had never been to New York uh, before my first year of law school, and I came down during spring break as a 1L for a conference at the UN. Um, and so my second time ever being in the city was for my callback interviews uh, the next year, Um so I, I was very much like the Canadian kid excited for an opportunity to make it in the big city. Um, and Paul Weiss recruited on campus in Montreal. Uh, so I interviewed with them and a couple of other firms and then came back. And everyone I met at Paul Weiss, uh, was so, they were, each person was so different, 
but really um, inspiring and interesting. And and so I just had a really good feeling about the the firm, and that's what made me choose Paul Weiss. But New York specifically, I think it was just an opportunity to to live in you know the center of it all. All the stereotypes about New York rang true for me. I hear yeah. I went to college in New York, and so I think there's that. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> As they city say. And bright lights. Yeah, exactly. So um, tell me a little bit about your experience and sort of track at Paul Weiss. Sure. So I uh, summered a couple of times. So my relationship with Paul Weiss dates way back, but I only came back full time as a litigation associate in 2013 after clerking, like I said. And uh, I was a lit associate for three years. And then about a year ago, I started in my current position of pro bono associate. Great. Now, what? tell me about your practice. What type of litigation did you do? I did a bit of everything. So Paul Weiss, um, litigators don't specialize uh, or, you know, generally they train folks as general litigators. And so I was doing everything from big white collar investigations to more standard civil litigation, um, you know, on, on larger teams, on smaller teams, um, in, you know, in New York, outside of New York and federal court and in state court. Uh, but I always also had a fairly robust pro bono practice. Um, so, yeah, I was doing a little bit of everything. And what, how, what was the draw to the litigation side of the law? Why do you think you pursued that? I don't know. It just felt right. When, my, when I summered, I tried assignments in all sorts of different departments. But um, the litigation side was just, I found it really exciting. Uh, Paul Weiss has, you know, great practice areas and everything, but it has historically been a really strong litigation firm in particular. And so there was certainly an excitement about joining that community. So you mentioned that while you were practicing in the commercial side as a litigation associate, you also had a robust pro bono practice. So what do you think sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? It's hard to pinpoint exactly. In, In college, I studied international development. So I've always had an interest in poverty issues internationally or locally. Um, And then, like I said, some of the work opportunities I had showed the, the role that law can play in those issues. And then as I went to law school and increasingly appreciated how uh, access to justice can impact you know, the the day-to-day lives of so many people. I think it, it all just came together for me that that's the sort of work that I wanted to be doing. And then the pro bono work I gravitated towards combined all those various interests. So I was doing a lot of um, special immigrant juvenile status work for child uh, refugees. So it co- combined my interest in, you know, international development, working with children, and, and um, access to justice, of course. Now, you mentioned that you made a pivot and you became the firm's pro bono associate, your current role. That is a very unique title. <laughs> there aren't many people with that title. And I'm hoping we could hear more about how you got the job and what is it. Sure. So I think I have probably one of the best jobs in the world. <laughs> I feel very lucky. Yep. And it is fairly unique. Uh, that I am the firm's first pro bono associate and I, I don't hadn't I haven't met very many other pro bono associates, which, um, as you mentioned. So how I got the job is just that, you know, it it became available and I applied and was lucky enough to get it. Um, But 
what I do, it's a little bit of everything. I'm Emily Goldberg is our pro bono counsel, so my boss and I'm her number two, and we together do everything from seeking out the right opportunities for the firm and its pro bono work, and then working through the process of all of our various representations. But specifically, my focus in the past year has been primarily on our immigration work, and we've been focusing a lot on some new clinics that we've been launching. So we've been working with our corporate clients on a, a number of different initiatives, some immigration ones, um, including asylum and U visa uh, and and other related issues. Um, and then also we've been doing a lot of transgender uh, legal name changes. So those two areas have been my um, primary focus. And then, you know, in addition to all of the day-to-day management that these programs take. So could you sort of paint a picture for us about your day and what it looks like? And I know it's sort of like no two days are the same, but sort yeah. of p- let's like pretend, you know, if we were filming the movie of uh, BJ's Tuesday, um, wh- how do you spend your time? What, what What's filling your time? It's so cliche to say that no two days are the same, but it is It is really true. But I think it, it's a bit seasonal and cyclical. So, for example, right now, the new associates are, the first years are about to arrive. And so a lot of my time is focused on preparing um, for their arrival. And similarly, when the summers were coming, we were doing that. Um, and it's also shifts depending on what's happening in the world. So obviously, there, you know, if there's a particular pro bono need that's arisen, I'll have to pivot to focus on that more. But um, in terms of the tasks I'm doing, there's a lot of emails <laughs> and yeah. a lot of calls and kind of problem solving and digging in um, with our various teams working on problems to help guide them to the right resources or strategize um, and work through, you know, any challenges they might be having. Um, a lot of meetings too, dealing with all of those those different things. So it's a very extroverted Role and that's turned out to be one of um, my favorite parts of this job is all of the di- are all the different people I get to interact with. But most of my time is now spent um, talking or or communicating in some <laughs> way or another with all sorts of different people. Yeah, it's really true, right? One of the biggest um, either skill sets or functions of these positions is as a communications, you know, communicating. Yeah. And particularly... (laughs) My first week after I started this job, I had to cancel all social plans and (laughs) just, like, sit at home quietly to recover because I was so... It's it's just a shift when you're a litigation associate. You spend a lot of time, um, you know, drafting or researching or or doing all those things, but by yourself. Of course, you're on teams, but it's it's just a different... It's a a real energetic shift. So I'm used to it now, but at first it was (laughs) was a bit shell-shocked. Yeah, it's true. Like, it's super social in that way, you know. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So you mentioned, I'm curious and was hoping you could uh, elaborate a little on setting up clinics. Uh, you talked about some immigration related ones. You talked about uh, name change ones. What what goes into that? What, what are sort of the elements if you're going to create a project like that? Not, not sort of the, uh, you know, minute task list, but what what are the elements or, or functions that go into creating something like that? Sure. That's a great question. In no particular order, <laughs> I think one of the first things is identifying a need. So in all the cases we've done a clinic model, we're responding to a need that's been identified um, either by us working with our clients or more often by our legal services uh, partners 
um, to a need they're seeing in the in the community that they think uh, a client model might be helpful for. And so identifying that need and then making sure that we have the right partner organization to work with. So there are communications, you know, that happen there. Making sure that we uh, have the expertise or can acquire the expertise to do whatever work is required. So that's, you know, figuring out how, what the training is going to look like and how the mentorship, if that's the model we're going with um, from the legal services organization, will work um, going forward in the in the project, um, assuming it's, you know, not a, a one-day clinic and there's like an ongoing representation associated with it. And then uh, making sure that we have the clients and that all language needs, often we have non-English speaking clients participating, so that's uh, logistically a, a big piece of it. Making sure that we've thought through any needs particular to that client population in terms of welcoming them into the, the law firm, staffing it with all our folks, uh, and then, you know, and then all the the many, many, many small details uh, that come into like putting on a big event um, because then it, it does shift into a bit of like event management <laughs> at a certain moment. So that's right. In addition to being an expert communicator, you also have to be an event planner <laughs> and a marketer. Yeah. So exactly. I I so appreciate that you gave such a client-centered answer and that you started with there needs to be a need. Um, because I think one of the pro bono worst practices are when people dream up a project, but there's no actual client pool. Or yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're yeah. really, it's not what the community and the people in the field kind of think is an urgent, unaddressed need. It's just something that sounded good or someone read it somewhere. Yeah. Or, right? It's like a backwards way of approaching it, I think. Um, and that leads to a lot of lost energy and time and kind of transaction costs that, that don't Definitely. bear fruit. And and in this arena, we can't afford to do that. <laughs> we need to be efficient. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and clinics are just quite labor intensive. Once you've done them a couple of times, they, they start to run themselves a little bit more. But as you say, it's a sad waste of resources on all sides. If it's not actually responding to need. And I think like Emily does this too. And I, I definitely try to be as humble as possible and deferential as possible to our legal services partners because they're really, you know, on the front lines, they're interacting with clients more than we are. And, and they know they're the subject matter experts. So um, we really try as a, as a sort of an orienting principle to focus on meeting the needs that are being identified by those, those folks. So we've talked about reading emails, sending emails, talking to people, talking to so many people, I just want to go home and binge watch TV and have you know, no human interaction, and event planning and working with legal services organizations. It's so much, right? Like, it's so demanding. There's so many ways you could slice and dice your day, which I'm sure is very long. What do you wish you could be doing more of, you know, if only you had more time? If, if you could clone yourself and have, you know, BJ 2.0, what, <laughs> what, what would he be doing? He would be probably interacting with clients one-on-one -on -one more. So I definitely still get to do that uh, sometimes, but that is certainly the most motivating part of the time I spend and my favorite part. So if I, yeah, can just have more face or could, in, in a dream world, I would have more face time with individual clients. So if you could elaborate, this may answer the next question. It could be time with individual clients, but what motivates and inspires you? 
Yeah, I think um, it's it's definitely the the individuals. I think I don't know the the legal system can just be so overwhelming to anyone, but particularly when the stakes are as high as they are for so many of the clients we see, and just the sense of you know, relief and solace and confidence and strength that clients take from knowing that they have one of our attorneys or more of, more than one of our attorneys on their side is so incredibly motivating. And then seeing the impact that we're able to have, whether it be in an individual, you know, like housing repair case or something, or on a, a broader, you know, nationwide impact case, it, it's... um I don't know, it may sound cheesy, but it's like the power of law to affect individuals is is so motivating and inspiring for me. What do you enjoy most about your job? Uh, I think like now that I've gotten used to it and I'm no longer exhausted from it, um, all the different people I get to interact with. So it's, you know, everyone from the clients that I was just talking about to, you know, so many more Paul Weiss attorneys than I did when I was just doing my uh, former practice to all the different other folks at Paul Weiss that, that exist to make this operation work, you know, on our management and operations side to all of the, you know, incredible legal services uh, folks. So, you know, whether it's the mentoring attorneys or, you know, our counterparts um, that have more of a pro bono management role there, uh, it's it's really, you know, dynamic and I'm, and it's inspiring to meet so many different um, people and interact with so many different people every day. Have we hit your one year mark? Yeah. So we're, I'm 13 months now. 13 months. Okay. Happy anniversary. (laughs) I was like, I knew it was around now Um, because I remember when we met in November of last year in your offices, it was, you know, new. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. So it is an interesting feeling, right, when you've kind of gone through the year cycle, how you've climbed the learning curve and can kind of adjust and things seem different. It, it's, I think, true with a lot of jobs, but particularly these positions where there's a lot coming at you fast, as they say. What are your greatest yeah. challenges? It's this is like a very mundane answer, but it's the number of emails. <laughs> like yeah. That is the single biggest challenge, I think, because I, you know, I want to, of course, be as responsive and helpful as possible. Um, but the, the volume is unlike anything I ever could have imagined. Um, internal, external, the combination? Uh, probably majority internal with, with some external, like I don't know, it would be hard to put a percentage on sure. it, but maybe like 65, 35, or 70, 30. Have you developed any tricks that have helped with email management, or that's on this year's <laughs> to-do list? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> like um, just waking up in the middle of the night panicking and remembering that I had forgotten to respond to some email. I, yeah, no, I have no, I, I, I know some colleagues keep like a zero um, inbox, inbox yeah. or, or whatever that's properly referred to. And I'm uh. very inspired by those folks, but I am not that person. Um, so I'm in desperate need of tricks and I just uh, do my best. I'm always intrigued by the people who declare like, what do they call it? Like email bankruptcies? Oh, I've never heard of that, but that's hilarious. So I don't I think I don't understand. I don't understand how lawyers can do it, but it's yeah. people who just basically 
just delete everything. And they have an audit responder that's like, I've deleted everything prior to blah, so start over. <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I know. I think that ethically probably you're right. The right? lawyers can't do that. I don't but... know. It's like a risk management nightmare. So I, I think it's a, <laughs> exactly. it's a non-starter, but you always wonder like, Really? What kind of gig do you have that you can just do that? You can just pretend, yeah, press restart. Yeah. 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 I actually think, you know, in the evolution of email, it has made sort of pro bono leaders' jobs harder because it, people, there's this kind of tune out of email, right? We just have so many that it's become a black hole of communication sometimes. So, you know, you will, or you being people in your position will send out emails and hear nothing back, you know, because it's easy to delete or not read or ignore. And so Mm -hmm. often, you know, people like emails because you can hit a lot of people in theory with one, you know, send, but the penetration isn't very great. You know, if you go door to door, (laughs) you're getting a lot deeper contact, but it's very hard to hit, you know, 800 people door to door. So the the payoff, the kind of cost benefit analysis is really a challenge. And I think email management is really hard with, you know, how you use it effectively now. Uh, hard. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that what we're seeing here is that the personal relationships really help. The same way that, like, if I get an email from someone I know, I'm more liable to read it carefully than if I just know it's a blast that it's from some anonymous source. So I like to pretend that because I know so many people at the firm, they read my emails. <laughs> but, um, we also definitely find ourselves pursuing a bunch of different routes and means of communication. So, you know, a combination of emails and lunches, like working group lunches and breakfasts and phone calls and in-person conversations and, and that kind of thing. So our producer, producer Misha, is a communication expert, and she is nodding like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Experts spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure all this out. So Definitely. Yeah, let's piggyback on their knowledge. So in the 13 months that you have been the pro bono associate of Paul Weiss, what surprised you about running a law firm pro bono program? Obviously, Paul Weiss has had this long... um, strong commitment to pro bono. It's really part of the culture and the history of the firm. And I knew that, and I knew that as a uh, litigator, and I knew that before I even came to the firm. So that is is certainly just the case. But until I had this role, I don't think I appreciated just how deep that commitment uh, was throughout the management of the firm in terms of what I've witnessed specifically is that the management of the firm is so willing to act quickly and decisively and with resources to respond to pressing pro bono needs. So really what I'm trying to say is that I've been moved, I think is the right way to put it, by how, just how committed uh, the leadership of the firm is to pro bono. Um, and so that's a pull specific answer, uh, but that's what I've been really struck by, especially in this, you know, moment where there are um, so many vital needs and, and you know, the, the rights of various vulnerable populations um, are, you know, threatened with an increasing regularity. Having that commitment has been really powerful. 
So I love your point about leadership commitment to pro bono, and it is the perfect segue to what I want to talk about next. And we did not plan this, so that's oh. amazing. <laughs> we're very, very in sync. But um, last winter, you were involved in efforts to respond to what's known as the Muslim travel ban and what I often like to call airport advocacy. And yeah. During that, um, a memo was made public that the firm chair, Brad Karp, sent, thanking firm lawyers for their efforts, which consisted of descending on JFK and Dulles airports to assist people who were being detained. More than 50 Paul Weiss lawyers participated, and Brad Karp called out several by name, including pro bono lawyers Emily Goldberg and B.J. Jensen, you. He wrote that you two, quote, worked tirelessly and without sleep to organize and coordinate these efforts with internally and across several nonprofit partners. The note concludes that the work continues and we have had teams of lawyers working in shifts around the clock. Unfortunately, there will be additional opportunities to get involved and we will continue to keep you apprised as the need arises. So I was hoping a, you could reminisce a bit and share this experience and elaborate on what it means to you to have the head of the firm, you know, recognize your contributions. Sure. Well, it's funny. Yeah, we are in sync. because <laughs> This is exactly what I was thinking of when I gave my previous answer. I guess to start with your second question, Brad is an incredible leader for the firm and, and to be recognized by him is, is very meaningful. So that was very kind of him to say and, re- and really did mean a lot. In terms of the time surrounding the, the airport first travel ban, like I said, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Within you know a couple of hours of learning of what was happening, we had sign-offs from the highest levels of the firm to have attorneys on the ground at the airports. We had one of our DC partners escort a group of associates to Dulles, and we had one of our senior litigators here in New York, um, senior litigation partners. I think he spent like 13 hours on the ground at JFK with other associates. Um, and and we were having these briefing calls with associates around the clock before they went out explaining um you know what their role would be and 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 the same senior litigator was participating on these calls with me like literally in the middle of the night um and in the middle of the day so 24 hours a day and uh, so, yeah, the firm leadership was incredible. We had so many partners reviewing documents and, and just being on call and available to support the associate response was tremendous. It was, I think, 50 associates on the ground within the first maybe 36 hours, and that number just continued to grow over the coming week. We had teams um, staffing the airports around the clock, and, and the response was, was just tremendously moving. And yeah, personally, it was it was a weird time because it was all just evolving so quickly. And so, you know, everyone uh, knows that the, there was a stay that was granted that Saturday night. Uh, and then Sunday morning, we learned that folks were being deported, at least at JFK, in violation of that stay. So attorneys were starting to file temporary restraining orders or TROs with the um, Eastern District of New York, so EDNY, and um, I went in person, I live in Brooklyn, so I went to, to go file one on a colleague's behalf, and we real, I realized once I got there that um, there was no enforcement mechanism in place, so it, what actually was happening 
but the security guards were telling me that, you know, it was a Sunday and the court was closed on a Sunday. And so, no, they wouldn't accept our filings. We had to come back on Monday morning and they didn't care that I said that folks were going to be deported. They didn't want to bother a judge on a Sunday. And so what I wound up having to do was camp out at the courthouse waiting to see anyone I thought might be a judge. And eventually I found a judge who called the, the right judge and she came in and, um, you know, started hearing these applications. And we, I think, were able to successfully block the removal of folks on the Sunday. But I say all this just to illustrate, it was such a, a such a crazy time. And I don't think anyone was really prepared for, had thought through all of the different um, parts of it. But the commitment of the legal community was, was so, so inspiring um, during that time. That always happens with kind of emergencies and, and things on the fly that in the moment, you're just doing the best you can. And yeah, when exactly. the dust settles, exactly. you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I wanted to ask, like, are you literally just camped out because you figure surely someone's coming to work on a Sunday or coming to pick something up or? I- yeah, <laughs> like my, my logic was that... I couldn't leave, you know, that wasn't an option. Um, and so I was, I, I obviously had my cell phone, you know, everyone has their cell phone all the time. So I was, but it was early. It was like crack of dawn on Sunday. And so I was calling, police obviously has a network of former clerks. So I was calling anyone I knew who had clerked at the EDNY who may have some sort of contact. And, we, you know, we had this sort of phone tree going and we had different potential options. But then I was also jumping on anyone who, well, not literally, of course, but um, battling up, I guess, to anyone yep. who was walking in the building. Uh, so I found a clerk or two and that wasn't um, turning anything up. And then eventually um, a judge came in. So I think my, my logic was just that I couldn't leave until we had a solution. Um, but getting to that solution, I didn't, I guess I didn't really have a clear route in mind. <laughs> It's also a lesson that lawyers need to be persistent. (laughs) You can't just be like, okay, security guard, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, BJ, I was curious. I've been thinking a lot um, getting ready to, to speak with you, and I was curious if you've read or heard about a new book called Refugee by Alan Gratz. Are you familiar with this? I'm not, but I'm looking it up right now as we speak. Okay, great. I want to tell you about it and tell our listeners about it. Um, Because I think sometimes, and I knew that you did a lot of uh, work for immigrants, including, you know, uh, airport advocacy and also your individual client representations. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to explain to people how we as lawyers work to make the world a better place. And I think it's especially hard for our kids to understand. This is why I'm not going to be home until late, or this is why I have to go on this trip. Like, I'm so sorry. I mean, all kids feel that about their parents' jobs. But this book is um, amazing. It's for young readers. It's YA, but it's a great read for anybody. And, um, a great reviewer, she's from New York, she's amazing, Marjorie Ingall, I love her. She, mm-hmm. she captured what's great about this book this way. There are explosions, sharks, gunshots, paranoia, teenage mutant ninja turtle merchandise, armed robberies, <laughs> a cute kitten, tear gas bombs, grease doorknob pranks, a bar mitzvah, and a bad guy so bad he beheads a child stuffed animal. I mean... Who wouldn't want more than that? It's amazing. It's basically the story 
fictionalized of um, three child refugees. One, a boy fleeing the Holocaust on the St. Louis, and we all know what happens to that ship, so that's hard. Mm -hmm. A girl fleeing Cuba on a boat trying to get to Florida, and a Syrian boy um, in sort of modern-day current events, you know, trying to get to Europe. And it's just brilliant the way the time travels. To me, it seems a little dangerous. I don't know if I was young. I mean, scary. But it's a super quick read, and I think, you know, those are our clients, and it really yeah. humanizes the lives that lawyers save. So um, if you need a quick read, go to your library, put it on hold. That's how I read it. It's just really great. Refugee by Alan Gratz. I recommend. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Sure. Um, are there, I know we talked about, you know, what happens with the travel ban and you mentioned, you know, it's just been such a busy time, a busy time for all of us because there's so much going on. You know, you just read yeah. the newspaper and you know this. Have there been other, um, I don't not necessarily a crisis, but a crisis or an emergency or something sudden that has kind of changed your attention or forced you to deploy resources, you know, something unscheduled that's happened that shifted your portfolio or to-do list? I feel like that happens every day. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to think of a good specific example. One example, uh, I have a couple of cases that I, you know, representations that I had when I was a litigation associate that have continued, um, that I've just, you know, kept in this role as well. And uh, most of them are, are SIDGE cases, so those special immigrant juvenile status cases. And in those cases, your clients are obviously um, under the age of 21, and I have a couple of um, teenage clients. And so the example that I, that, and, and I also am pulled into these kinds of situations uh, on other on our other stage cases often. So what we have with those um, kids who, if I can just bracket for a second, are some of my, I find the most inspiring uh, clients for all the reasons you just talked about with the refugee book. Um, you know, these, like, children are just so incredibly resilient and the clients that we have, our stage clients have survived unimaginable um, you know, violence or, or mistreatment in their home countries and then have bravely traveled through similarly unimaginable circumstances to get here and then come and are often just, you know, like your typical teenager and they're dealing with all the drama that a typical teenager would deal with. So fights with their parents or, you know, fights with their friend at school or they don't want to, you know, it's normally fights with the parents. <laughs> and so we often get kids calling us just in a bit of a state. And that is the sort of thing that um, has caused me to have to sort of drop things and um, reorganize things to deal with an urgent uh, issue. And, you know, it's tough because obviously we're not social workers and we, um, but we are trusted adults in their lives. And when a, a kid calls you and needs help, you respond. That's what I think most people do. So that's, that's what comes to mind. That's a great point. And I think also that's what lawyers do. <laughs> I mean, when yeah. clients call you, you drop everything and you serve their needs. So exactly. pro bono clients, paying clients, corporate clients, that is our role. <laughs> we are yeah. legal service providers. And sometimes it's very nine to five and sometimes, whoop, there's an emergency. There's an urgent <laughs> exactly, need. Exactly. Yeah. So 
what are some additional examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you over the course of your career, either ones you've worked on or ones now over 13 months that you've seen or facilitated other people at the firm doing that have spoken to you? So tell us some stories. Yeah, again, there's so many. I think, you know, we've talked about often the ones that I come back to all the time are that first weekend on the trip for the travel ban or the fish cases that I see in touch. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to pick because I find myself often thinking of our individual clients. And so, you know, one example, uh, we had an asylum client who was in just a, like a very challenging, um, life situation and had also experienced, you know, really difficult, um, difficult things. And she, she struggled. But I guess, this, you know, this happens on so many cases. I don't know that it's particularly unique, but she just really had struggled to tell um, her story and testify openly. And it just took so much effort from so many people to get her comfortable. And for a number of complicated reasons, um, she wound up having to have multiple merits hearings, which is not typical. And when she was eventually when she eventually was granted asylum, um, it was one of the most powerful experiences of my professional career, just seeing her relief and joy. And it, you know, it may have stuck with me because it was one of the first cases I became involved with, um, in my new role. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's the individuals that really stick with you. But then at the same time, you know, we did a, a voting rights case in Florida in the fall that was over a long weekend. And, you know, I think the team had 72 hours to pull it together. And the dedication there was incredibly inspiring. Same with a number of other briefs that have happened over the past year where literally we have, you know, a day or two to pull it together and people are just willing to work around the clock to get it done. But again, I think for me, it comes back to the individuals. I'm inspired by our clients. I'm inspired by my colleagues. Yeah. And I think sometimes those, you know, boom, we're going to full court press 72 hours and get this done. That is a sign of dedication and commitment, right? It's not a project that I can just do at my convenience. It's like I have to check out of my life to focus. Exactly, exactly. And that, that means it's important, and we are willing to do whatever it takes. I want to follow up on something we talked about, you know, much earlier on, but I think that it will be a way to help educate some of our listeners who aren't familiar with this area of legal need or the sure. work that you're doing. And we we glossed over it, but we didn't really explain. And that is, you talked about name change project. Could you yeah. kind of put some uh, details and kind of background for people who aren't familiar with that? Sure. So the name changes that we're doing are with transgender clients. So those are folks who identify with so it's a big umbrella category, so that's why I'm pausing a sec. I just want to make sure that I'm capturing everyone. But it's folks who don't identify with the, the gender that they were assigned at birth. So they may identify with the other gender or they may identify, you know, somewhere along the gender spectrum and who have decided that they want uh, to legally change their name to better reflect their identity. And so the first step in New York is that you have to go to a court and have the court order that name change. And the reason that name changes are so significant for our clients or for trans folks in general um, are for a lot of, you know, seemingly mundane reasons. The I think most people don't think about how often they're asked to show ID or use some sort of, um, uh, you know, 
identification or payment method that has a legal name on it. And so everything from like paying with something at a a restaurant or a store to um, buying tickets or checking into a hotel, uh, you know, traveling, um, all of that requires receiving mail at your house, working, um, all of that is done normally in your legal name. And for somebody whose legal name doesn't match their gender identity and gender expression and presentation, that can expose them to, you know, at the lower end, embarrassment and at the extreme end, discrimination and violence. So the legal name change is the the first step, at least in New York, to uh, getting all of that identification to match um your lived experience and your identity. So it can be incredibly powerful. And the, the process itself is actually fairly simple for a legal process. There's a fairly basic petition that you fill out. Um, maybe a couple of other documents are required. And you go to a hearing where the judges hear normally a lot of different um, name change petitions at once um, and normally grant them all on the spot. Sometimes there are publication requirements and, and other notification requirements um, and sometimes not. Uh, but for a, a lay person, um, or even, fr- frankly, an attorney, uh, it can be stressful to encounter this process, especially when the stakes feel so personally high. It's an issue of such personal significance. So what we do is um, we have a whole uh, a whole ton of lawyers here that are doing these kinds of cases, and we um, work with Teldef on them. And so they refer us a number of trans clients, and, and we just help them work their way through the process. And they're, like I said, they're, it's not a super complicated process. So for the attorneys, it doesn't take them a huge amount of time, but to have a, a, a lawyer with you in through that process is just really powerful, and um, it's, a, it's a really positive uh, experience for our clients and, and really, yeah, it, 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 it's quite literally life-changing for, for most of our clients. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you for putting context and explaining the whole work of the project because I think sometimes people don't fully understand how powerful that can be, you know, and the real legal need that it's serving and the real difference that it can make. So I think understanding the real value uh, of the work is incredibly powerful. So I, yeah. I think that's great and really helpful to know. So we've been looking to the past, but so let's let's switch up and look to the future. What's on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? Tell us about one or two new things that you have in the works. Sure. So as we've talked about, I'm, you know, 13 months in <laughs> to my role here. Emily um, is 18 months in, and then we've just hired this past spring two additional team members. So we're really in a growth and development phase as a program. Of course, as I've said, I mean, as is well known, Paul White has this like long history of, of excellent pro bono work, but as a, as a program ourselves, we're, we're really growing and developing. There are so many exciting things planned for this year. I think it, it's uh, it's hard to just pick a couple, but it's it's going to be a year of continued growth and um, and development for us. Well, that's great. Well, I can't wait to have you back <laughs> and learn about <laughs> the growth and development and talk to your other team members. And it's it's super exciting time. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. So, BJ, if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about access to justice or pro bono? So my probably very unrealistic wish, I think, would be that no one should ever have to encounter the legal system without the assistance of an attorney. 
think that's what I would change. That's great. Lawyers for everybody. Lawyers for everybody, everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yep. Full it's a big access. wish, but sure. that's if I had a magic wand, that's yep. what I would use it for. That's why it's magic. <laughs> that's a good use of it. Um, <laughs> so, BJ, let's end with this. Who is your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one, and why? Sure. So that, I feel like, is maybe the toughest question you've asked, because as I said, I have just had the privilege of meeting um, so many incredibly inspiring people uh, this, this past 13 months. Um, I think if I had to choose one, I would choose um, the senior litigation partner that I referenced earlier uh, who sort of led the charge at JFK. Um, the partner's name is Bob Atkins. And he, I previously worked with him as a litigation associate, and he's one of the you know smartest, most capable and impressive attorneys I had uh, ever encountered, um, be it, you know, working on, on paying or pro bono work. Um, but witnessing him now in my new role has just been, uh, has been even more inspiring. Like he, that weekend, he was the one that was on the call, on the calls with me briefing associates at all hours. He was on the ground at JFK for hours. He drafted the habeas petition that wound up being used by um, many of the legal services organizations uh, throughout that week at JFK. He's a leader in our voting rights work. So that that story that I was um, remembering about that that weekend, uh, long weekend where he had uh, or where a team pulled together a brief. He was leading that charge and he's doing things all the time. And it just, it's in his blood to do pro bono work. And I think um, just his commitment and uh, an attitude towards it is is what I find um, most inspiring. What a great choice. And it reminds me that pro bono leaders see the best of our profession, right? You, you see the amazing dedication and commitment of your colleagues and how they just go above and beyond. So I think sharing your story about Bob, you, you get to see that side, you know, the full, yeah. the full side. Well, and he's incredible. Like, he's one of those people who gets so excited to be discussing legal strategy, which is contagious. He's someone who loves being an attorney and is an excellent attorney, and then that makes you all you want to try harder and and care even more. And so his enthusiasm is infectious, no matter what he's working on. And to have that energy and commitment in the pro bono space is is really powerful. I think. Yeah, passionate people and lawyers who love being lawyers. It's it's contagious. That's <laughs> a force. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We should sur- great qualities. We should surround ourselves with more of them. Well, BJ, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been so inspiring and and a pleasure. Same here. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to BJ for making the time to be with us and sharing his stories. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Remember to subscribe and leave a review. Hey, listeners, we've gotten some great mail from you, and we love even more. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.